Blessings to everybody today. Those of you that are with us online, thank you for being so stalwart and staying with us through these days of COVID-19. We sure love you. We miss you. Many of you would be here if you possibly could, and we know that. And wherever you are this morning, it's a joy to be able to come together to worship the Lord. Let's pray before we get into the Word this morning. Can we do that? Father, we love you, and we're very thankful this morning for the blessing of being able to be uh, not only in your presence, but together with the flesh and blood uh, body of Christ, with saved, redeemed people, with whom we are all one, and may today be rich and sweet in every respect. Thank you for wonderful worship, such a great leadership team. We're grateful for powerful songs that take us into your presence and are so supportive of the scriptures that we preach. And we pray that as we share now from the word that your spirit really would do the teaching, help us not to muddle it, but just pray that the Holy Spirit would speak clearly and convincingly, not only informing us, but transforming us, changing us through the power of the written word of God, which is living and authoritative, sharp, and discerns what's going on in our life like nothing else can. So speak to us today, and may we grow up in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, just a few weeks ago, uh, I preached uh, for several weeks to an empty room, and of course, one of those Sundays was Easter Sunday. most surreal experience ever was for the church not to be able to gather together on what is the highest point of the Christian calendar for the whole year. And so, you know, it was me and our wonderful tech team and Brad and some of the musicians were here and just an empty room. And so I shared the power of the resurrection as best I could. And you know, when I got home that afternoon, I got a text message from one of our folks who had been watching online. And she said to me, Pastor, appreciate the message today, but I just have one question. What happened to Jesus? Between the time they took him off of that cross till he rose again on Easter Sunday morning, where did he go? What did he do? What happened to Christ after he died? And of course, I I get deep theological questions posed to me electronically from time to time, and my first response, typically in my mind, is to say, are you where thousands of pages have been written on this? And this is a text message. And so trying to figure out how to respond to it. And so I took kind of the easy way out because we like started this series on the Apostles' Creed before the COVID thing became a thing. And we had to go dark kind of in terms of our gathering. And then we had to stop that because I felt like that really wasn't what our church needed to hear at the time. And so we, we chased some other things from our pulpit during the darkest part of the COVID-19 contagion. And, um, but I knew I was coming back to it at some point after we'd started gathering together again. And so my response was simply this. This is a great question. I have an answer for it, but I'm not going to share it with you right now. I'm going to keep you in suspense. And at some point later on in the fall, when I pick this series back up, I'm going to have an entire sermon dedicated to it. And she said, well, you better. I'm coming back a second time. And so today's the day that we're going to talk about that and what amounts to the most controversial part of the entire Apostles' Creed. Uh, 
A portion that even some modern scholars today say, you know what, we just need to take that line out all together. But I don't think that's necessary. I think what is necessary is that we come to an answer to the question that our wonderful Hillcrest family member posed. What happened to Jesus immediately after he died and before he was buried? This question is kind of addressed in an indicative form in the Apostles' Creed. We're in a series, by the way, for those of you who may be relatively new, talking about not so much the Apostles' Creed, but the things that compose the most significant fundamentals of our faith. What is it that a, a believer has to believe in order to be a believer? What, 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 what are the absolute essentials, the non-negotiables? And those things are addressed in a historic confession of our Christian faith known as the Apostles' Creed. Been in use for about 1,800 years in some form in church life. And it's a very helpful tool, easy to commit it to memory as a reminder of the things that are most important to us. And of course, the biggest chunk of the Apostles' Creed is what it has to say about God the Son, Jesus Christ. Two-thirds of the Apostles' Creed has something to do with Jesus. And we've talked about some of that already. You remember? I believe in God the Son, His only Son, Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then our text for today, He descended to the dead. Now, what in the world is that all about? And what does it mean? Well, we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about that very thing today. Theologians call this in its Latin form the descensus, sometimes just simply referred to as the descent of Christ, and that's how I'll be referring to it today as the descent. What do we mean when we talk about Jesus descending after His death? I'm telling you, it's impossible to deal with this subject in a text message response, and it's not much easier to deal with it in one simple standalone teaching in the brief time that we have today. But I'm going to do the best I can. And to do that, let's see if we can just isolate four statements and build our understanding of what it means that Jesus descended to the dead around these four statements. That'd be okay with everybody? Amen. Statement number one is simply this, the descent reminds us, first of all, of the absolute crucial truth, namely that Jesus really did die. That's not the first time I've said that. There's a lot that is often debated and discussed about the historical Jesus of Nazareth, but one thing that is not really debatable is the fact that Jesus actually suffered and that He actually died. At least it's not debated that much. There are still some who would argue that Jesus, when he came down from the cross, didn't actually come down from the cross dead. This is sometime, anybody ever heard the swoon theory? That Jesus just swooned on the cross. Now I want you to think about how badly he was beaten. You know, one of the greatest miracles in the Bible that's never even substantiated as a miracle is that Jesus didn't die before they nailed him to the cross. I mean, he was beaten to a pulp. 
So you think about all that Jesus went through physically, all the suffering. He was sweating drops of blood in the garden before he was even arrested. His body was in crisis physically. And yet they nailed him to the cross after all of that physical tumult, nailed him to the cross. And there he hung for hours in the hot Palestinian sun, thirsty, dehydrated. And then he cried, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. With that, the Bible says he breathed his last. And just to be sure, those Roman guards punched a spear into his side, out flowed blood and water. Speaking of those Roman guards, let me just say this morning, they were there for a reason. This was a form of Roman execution. And those guys had one responsibility, make sure that guy gets on the cross alive and make sure he comes down from the cross very dead. That was their responsibility. And if they failed in their responsibility, if that guy that they took down from the cross ended up walking the streets of Jerusalem a week and a half later, then they were going down. And I don't mean to a dungeon, they would die. And so can I just say this morning, Roman guards who had crucifixion duty were deadly serious about it and they never lost a case. And this is why the absolute death of Jesus Christ is mentioned in Paul's greatest summary of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, as he indicated, indicates it, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following. You remember what he said? For I delivered unto you that which is of first importance, highest priority, that Christ Jesus, what? Died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so there Paul emphatically declares the absolute death of Christ and punctuates it with a mention with respect to the burial. Now it seems to me like if you say a man is dead, that's really all you need to say, but that's not all he says. He mentions the fact that Jesus not only was dead, but that he was buried. Now why go to the trouble to do that? Punctuation. It emphasizes finality, closure, the absolute certainty that Jesus was very dead. It's punctuated by the burial. John goes into a little bit more detail about the burial of Christ when he mentions that Joseph of Arimathea, who himself was a Pharisee, goes to Pilate. He was a great admirer of Jesus, perhaps even a believer in Jesus. And he goes to Pilate and requests the body of the Lord Jesus Christ after it was taken down from the cross. And Pilate ascends to his request and gives him the body of Jesus. Joseph owned his own tomb, cut rock, very expensive, cut into the side of a cave. And he, together with his colleague Nicodemus, who we were introduced to at the beginning in a very familiar way, at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Now at the end of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus reappears. This thriving, popular member of the Jewish Sanhedrin that everybody loved and respected. Now partners with Joseph of Arimathea 
to come together to prepare the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ for burial in Joseph's tomb. And the Bible says they take 75 pounds of spices and aloes and they do an external embalming of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which they would have never done had the body had life in it. It would have taken them hours to have done this to prepare the body of Jesus and then to wrap it in clean cloth, sterile cloths. We call that mummification. That's what they did to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, make no mistake. Can we take it to the bank this morning? Jesus was very dead when he came down from the cross. And what happens next to Jesus actually accentuates that. But the descent reminds us of that. That's the first thing that should come to mind when we talk about Jesus descending to the dead is that from a physical standpoint, his body really did die. But then we come to the most important part of this message today, and that which will take the longest amount of time to unpack, namely that the descent implies that there was a separation between Jesus' soul and Jesus' body. Now, Jesus died, but I want you to make no mistake, Jesus did not cease to live when he died, and neither will you. Your body will die, to be sure. But you don't need a body to live. Everybody lives forever somewhere. If that's not true, then Jesus' statement in John chapter 11, just before he raised Lazarus, his friend's body, from the dead, makes no sense. He looks at Mary and Martha, and he said, I myself and I alone am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Even though the body does die, the real you never does die. Everybody tracking with me? And that's because you have an eternal part of your nature, a soul. You have a soul, you have a spirit. And there is a separation from the soul and the spirit whenever a human being dies. And the same was true with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this helps us to answer that question, doesn't it? What happened to our Lord between the time of his physical death and the time of his bodily resurrection on the third day? What happened specifically on that Saturday, really on Friday after they took him down from the cross Friday afternoon, starting Friday afternoon into Saturday, through Saturday evening into Sunday morning, what happened to our Lord? Now, we've gotten away from really doing anything over Easter weekend on Saturday that's overtly spiritual. We might read the Bible and we might pray, and those are all great things you should do every day. But it's not like we ever have a Saturday service to commemorate what happened to Jesus and what was going on with Jesus on Saturday. Man, we have Good Friday, gave that one a name. And then we have Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, gave that one a name. But Saturday is just kind of, you know, that's Biden time for most believers. And throughout church history, much of church history anyway, it's called Holy Saturday, still is. 
among certain groups. But we in our tradition typically go to a ball game, get out on the lake, whatever the case might be. But it's a very important thing that goes on here because this takes us to the statement in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead. Now, let me up front just give you a real short snippet of what that means. Jesus' soul, his spirit, his human soul, his human spirit was separated from his human body. And it went to the place where eternal souls and spirits go after they die this side of the final judgment. Let me let that sink in for just a moment. And then let me talk about what that means for a few minutes. In some of the older versions of the Apostles' Creed, anybody know what it says here? He descended into hell. That's right. But we don't believe that. Let me just make a statement up front. Hell, as we often talk about it, the the so-called lake of fire, it's really kind of not a thing yet. Oh, it will be. And it will be prepared for those who are unredeemed, unregenerate, for those who do not know Christ. But there is nobody in what we know as final hell today. It is unpopulated today. And so to say that Jesus descended into hell as we know it would not be a true statement because that surely did not happen. People won't actually populate hell until after the great white throne judgment that's mentioned in the book of Revelation that happens after the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, you have to be judged. And then from the judgment, those unregenerate souls who never believed in Jesus Christ for who he claimed to be and what he actually did in his work on the cross are then cast into final hell. There is what we sometimes call, though, the intermediate state. There's an in-between time that takes place. You don't need a body to live, and there is a time that all human beings, including Christ, live apart from their bodies. The intermediate state, sometimes called the disembodied state. And that's what happened to Jesus. His soul was separated from his body, and it went to what the creed calls the abode of the dead. He descended to the dead. That is, he descended to the realm of the dead, to the place of the dead, to that place where dead souls and spirits that are still alive because they're eternal, where they go after death. Now, the Bible does shed some light on what that's actually like. So let's take a minute or two and talk about that by going to the Word of God. Everything that I've said up to this point is the introduction to my message. Somebody say amen. Now, let's take a look at a couple of scriptures that'll help us kind of piece things together. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Not without about that much mystery. This is very mysterious. And I'm not going to be able to thread it all together and pull it up tight into a seamless garment though I'm going to try to do the best I can. Let's look at Jesus' own words from Matthew 12, beginning in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, some people think that that's a reference to to the grave or to the tomb of Christ, but I don't think so. 
I think the heart of the earth is the place where our spirits and souls go after death. The Jews understood that as the abyss or the underworld, the netherworld, ever how you want it. It was a place that was somehow below the surface level of the ground that we're standing on. The inner recesses of the earth as the ancient Jew understood it. So we have to have a proper understanding of the ancient language here to kind of understand what's going on. That's a reference to the spirit realm of the souls of the dead. Then there's Romans 10, beginning in verse 6, another complex passage. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss. Now, this is where we get the language that's in the creed. In other words, who, who can go and retrieve Christ from the realm of the dead? It's a very mysterious statement. Time doesn't permit us to look at the context here in Romans 10. But what I want you to simply notice is this illusion of descent into an abyss, into this kind of unqualified, mysterious place that no physical human eyes really ever seen. This is the place from which, if it were possible, Christ might be brought out of. And that's made more clear from a statement of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, the great Pentecost sermon, where he says concerning King David of Israel, Acts 2 and verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was, watch this now, that he was not what? Said out loud. He was not abandoned to Hades, left there, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so, by the term descent, the descent of Christ, here's what we mean. With all that's a little bit of scriptural background, there are others that we could mention. We simply mean that when Jesus died physically in the body from his experience on the cross, he experienced human death just as we do. His body physically died and was buried. But then his soul, the instant that his body breathed its last, his soul departed to what we call the abode of the dead, which is a temporary place that human souls go until the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. Does that make sense? There's a temporary place where human spirits, human souls go after they die, awaiting the second coming of Christ, where they will then be judged and then they will be delivered to their final dwelling place. Either for believers, final heaven, or for unbelievers, final hell. Okay? So that's what we mean when we talk about the descent of Jesus Christ. Now, to try to clear things up a little bit, because sometimes that temporary holding place just goes for all people, saved and lost, it just goes by the name Hades. Hades, the place of the dead. 
In the Old Testament, sometimes the word that you read instead of Hades, anybody know what it is? Sheol, that's right, very good. Sheol, the abode of the dead. This was the Jewish concept of what happens to people. There is a realm of the dead, and indeed there is. People aren't going to live there forever, but they are going to live there as God's plan for redemption continues to unfold and then climax at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in this general place of the dead, sometimes called Hades, other times called Sheol, there are three distinct sections. Not everybody goes to the same place in the realm of the dead. And I got a little chart. I like visuals. How about you? So I brought a little chart, maybe help things along a little bit. Let's show it on the screen. This is not mine, but this is the best one I could find from um, one of our professors at Oklahoma Baptist University actually came up with this. Very, very helpful. Let's start with the middle one. That's Hades, used in a specific form. Hades, the place of the unrighteous dead. This is where the lost go. And it's apparently a place you don't want to go, even though it's not final hell, which we know there's nothing good about that. There's nothing good about the section of the abode of the dead known as Hades either. Because Jesus taught a parable about that. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Luke chapter 16, where there is a poor beggar named Lazarus who dies. And the Bible says his soul goes to one place. And then there is a rich man who is unnamed, and his soul goes to Hades, right? And they're clearly not in the same place, though, as we'll see in a minute, they are able to at least commune with one another. You're not able to leave one place and go to the other, but somehow there is an awareness between these locales in the places uh, of the dead. And the Bible says that's the case here, Luke 16, 22. The rich man also died and was buried and in where? Say it out loud. In Hades being in what? Torment. And again, this is not final hell, but it's not good. It's not pleasant. Being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Now, the experience is exactly the opposite for the beggar named Lazarus. Because it says here in Luke 16 that this man is in a different part of the, the abode of the dead. It's called Abraham's bosom, 1622. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, another name for Abraham's bosom would be what, scholars? Anybody know? I think I heard it. Shout it like you know it. Paradise. Very good. Aha. And that reminds us of a conversation that Jesus has on the cross with one of the dying thieves. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said unto him, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. That's right. So paradise, Abraham's bosom, same place. Not final heaven as we know it, but the temporary abode of the living spirits of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith. And if we put the slide back up, guys, you'll see that at the top. That's the place of the righteous dead. 
paradise or Abraham's bosom. This is the place that today we often refer to as heaven. And here's the thing. Everybody with me say amen. That's okay. In fact, it's even referred to as heaven in some places in the Bible, like uh, in Philippians. For our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's okay to refer to this as heaven. It's just not where we're going to spend the rest of eternity after the second coming of Christ. Heaven, as we like to think of it, is actually a recreated planet Earth. That's where we're going to spend eternity, with resurrection bodies, glorified as Christ's body itself was glorified. Jesus is going to come again, and a part of his recreated work is not only raising us from the dead physically, but transforming the broken, fallen earth and restoring it back to the pristine condition that it was in when he was when it was first created before Adam and Eve made the awful decision to go their own way and sin broke everything. So final heaven doesn't exist yet because Christ hadn't come back yet. Instead, when we speak of heaven for those of our love, see, this is where you say, where's my great grandmama who died trusting Jesus to save her? She's right there. She's the same place where Christ is today, the same place where the thief on the cross went when he died. She ceases to be in the body, vacates the body, and she goes to the presence of the Lord in that place called paradise in spirit, fully alive. You say, well, what's life like there? That's the mystery. We don't know completely, but we know we'll be there. And we'll be, for us now, in the presence of the Lord because that's where our Lord is. You see, when Jesus was preparing his disciples before his own death, there in John 14, they're discouraged because Jesus is trying to set up his coming crucifixion and they're not buying it. And they're getting frustrated by it. You remember what he told them? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. It's not finished yet. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'm saying there's a whole lot we as believers have to look forward to that hadn't happened yet. Final heaven's still being worked on. And one day it will be. But Jesus has to come first and usher it in. And an amazing thing is going to happen, brothers and sisters, when he comes. When he comes, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that God will bring with Christ those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So not only is Christ coming back, he's bringing all of the Christian dead back with him in their spirit form. As he comes down from heaven with the spirits of the departed Christian dead together with him, all of them being emptied out of this temporary place called paradise, They're coming to a world that will be radically transformed and a part of the coming of Christ 
involves the dead physical remains of all who have died in the Lord coming up out of those graves. The virtual choir sang about that very thing a few minutes ago. The dead in Christ will rise first even while they're coming down out of heaven. Spirits come down out of heaven. Dead bodies rise from the grave and the two somehow meet the Lord in the air and they're reunited, given a resurrection glorified body that will never change and have no flaws outfitted for a new heaven and a new earth for the rest of eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. But that hadn't happened yet. Still okay to say that daddy's in heaven today. Technically, daddy's in paradise if he knew the Lord. One day, he'll leave paradise with the Lord. And he will be established as part of the kingdom of our Lord on a recreated earth forever and ever and ever. Now I got to move on quickly. Everybody hanging with me? Is that clear as a bell or clear as mud? Don't answer that question. <laughs> Chew it up. But this answers the question. Where did Jesus go between his death and resurrection? Went to paradise. His spirit went to paradise. His body remained in the tomb. But he didn't just go to paradise without a purpose. And that takes us to the third idea, and that is the descent provided a forum for Jesus to declare victory in the abode of the dead. Man, Jesus, when he went to the abode of the dead, he went preaching. Once a preacher, always a preacher. Can I have an amen? amen. He went preaching. Again, kindly mysterious. He didn't preach a message like I preach. That's like a gospel message that calls for a decision that appeals to the inner nature of a person to encourage them to surrender to Jesus Christ and give their hearts and lives to them and follow Jesus as a disciple to be saved. That's not the kind of preaching Jesus did. But Jesus, I think, sure did a lot of shouting. I think that when he went to the abode of the dead, he continued in a fuller and more vibrant way the message that he actually proclaimed from the cross just before he died. The three most important last words of Jesus were what? It is finished. And that's not a discouraging statement. That's not Jesus saying, I'm done. It's over. No hope. No, when he said it is finished, that's a cry of victory. The will and the plan of God for the salvation of human beings has been accomplished in me. It is finished. And I'm pretty sure that's kind of what he was saying when he went to the underworld. This takes us back to 1 Peter 3, 18. I've mentioned 1 Peter 3.18, the last two teaching sessions that we've had together. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh. Now, this is where we've stopped the last two times. Put to death in the flesh. But then verse 9 
or verse 19 rather continues. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Some versions say made alive by the spirit with a capital S, which is true, but I don't think that's what Peter's saying. He was put to death in the realm of the physical, the flesh. He was made alive in the realm of the spiritual. He died and yet he lived at the same time. But here's what I want you to notice happens next. Talk about mystery. Verse 19, put to death in the flesh, made alive by the spirit in which Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The prison, of course, being the prison of the abode of the dead, where the unrighteous souls of unredeemed men and women are. And then there is a third dimension to the underworld that I'm only going to have time just to mention. And that's a good thing because I don't know anything else about it other than just to mention it. And you can see it on the color graph. You have paradise, which is the temporary abode of the righteous dead. You have Hades, which is the temporary abode of the unrighteous, unsaved dead. And then you have the third, which is Tartarus. You know how I remember that? Tartar sauce, which you put on fried fish. Tartarus, Tartarus. And that, by the way, is found in the book of Second Peter, another one of the most incredible statements, Second Peter 2 and verse 4, God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now we're getting into angelology. I don't know if I told you all, we're going deep today. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. That's an unusual word for hell. There are multiple words for hell. This one is Tartarus. The only time it's used in the Bible is right here. So you know what Tartarus is? All those fallen angels, Lucifer and his men, that's where they all are. There's a place in the realm of the dead for rebellious, angelic spirits who have turned away from the holy God of heaven and earth. And they're there as well. And so when Jesus goes on this preaching mission, the people in paradise don't need it because they already know. But the people in those other two places, the people of the spirits in those other two places, Jesus is proclaiming the victory of the cross. That's what I think. He's not giving them a chance to repent. He's not giving them a chance to, to uh, walk an aisle, go to a Discover Church class. He's not giving them a chance to do any of that. He is simply proclaiming to these spirits the victory of the cross. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2 at the very end of this great statement about Christ? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Where? In heaven, on earth, and what? Under the earth, that's the place of the dead. And every tongue confess, where? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. These folks who have already died without seeing 
the plan of God accomplished in the cross of Christ, they're going to know it because Jesus went preaching after his lifeless body came down from the cross. Now let's get practical as we conclude because the descent has a word for us. His descent means something to you and me. And this is the takeaway today because the descent reminds believers that we don't have to be afraid to die. The greatest fear of humanity today is the fear of death. Now, people will talk about other things, fear of spiders, and I don't like them. Snakes, needles, public speaking. You fill in the gap. Heights, claustrophobia, tight spaces. We're afraid of a lot of things. But the number one fear is death. But you don't have to be afraid to die. And this is part of the reason why you have the Apostle Paul making such counterintuitive statements about dying. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Who in their right mind says something like that? When the whole world frames death not in terms of gain, profit, but in terms of loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, if we did it the biblical way, we'd go up to somebody's family who had lost someone dear to them, and instead of saying, I'm so sorry for your loss, how about going up to them and saying, I'm so thankful for Bessie's profit. Because she's in like a really good place right now. She doesn't need faith anymore. It's all real. And so this is an important thing for us because when we think about what happened to Jesus when he died, that's supposed to be an encouragement that reminds us the same thing that happened to him is what we have to look forward to when we die. And Paul says that's actually a preferable thing. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he goes on in verse 23 to say, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Why would he say something like that? Because he knew what he had to look forward to. Better than what? How about better than the rats in a stinking dungeon? How about better than the scourgings and the beatings with rods? How about better than the shipwrecks? How about better than the blasphemous slander that was constantly poured his way? The invective, the abuse, the trials, the trauma, the tribulation. How about better than all of that stuff? There ought to be a part of every believer's life that's at least a little bit like that. To where when we think about death, not only do we not fear death, but there ought to be a part of every growing believer who is walking the journey of spiritual growth and development with Jesus Christ. There ought to be a part of our life that not only is not afraid of death, but that actually longs for it. I'm not in a hurry to die. I told you all I got a grandbaby coming. Be delivered at sacred heart. Not in any hurry, but I'm not afraid of it.
And if you know Jesus, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And this, brothers and sisters, is why the descent matters. Therefore, we are of good courage and prefer to be absent from the body, which means to be present with the Lord. Provided, of course, that you've trusted Christ to save you. This is God's Word. And let all God's people say, Amen.